Amen. You can keep open there at Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. So we come to study it today. The Messiah tempted by Satan. The Messiah tempted by Satan. We know hardly anything about what will happen in 2024. We don't even know if we'll live to see tomorrow, never mind the rest of this new calendar year. We probably already have some things planned. Maybe you've already booked a summer holiday, like the church holiday conference, for example. But we don't know for sure that we'll get to experience the things that we've planned for this year. Will food prices finally come down? Will the wars in Europe and the Middle East escalate or be resolved? Will my loved one recover from illness? We don't know the answer to these questions. But one thing we do know, assuming we live to see another day, never mind another year, we will face temptations to sin. We will face temptations to sin. Temptation, which is the pressure, the urge, whether it be from the world or from the devil, from our own flesh, to say or do that which is against God's word. Temptations are sometimes a a daily, sometimes an hourly reality for all of us, Christian or non-Christian. And yet what's remarkable as Matthew continues to introduce the Messiah in these early chapters of his gospel, what's remarkable is that our Savior Jesus Christ has himself chosen to come and face those same temptations. He chose to take on human flesh. He chose to experience the pressures, the difficulties, the testing situations that we face. And this is one of those things that makes our faith as Christians unique, that the Lord Jesus Christ, although he, is, he was and is now God in human flesh, that he came and, and, and subjected himself to all these things that you would think he would want to spare himself from. That Jesus didn't come to the earth as some sort of superhero impervious to the things that uh, we struggle with and the things that make our lives difficult. Jesus came and subjected himself to these things as well. And right before Matthew finally brings us to the point where Jesus the Messiah begins to publicly preach and teach and announce the kingdom of God, right before he does that, Matthew shows us here Jesus being tempted, severely tempted by Satan. And I want us to think about this passage today on on two levels. We are going to think later about Uh, more in terms of application, what what we're to take away from this passage for our own lives. Uh, But I want us, first of all, to appreciate all that was unique about Jesus being tempted by Satan. Uh, The tendency for us when we we come to this or any other passage of Scripture, uh, sometimes we can read ourselves into the text too quickly. That we come to the passage and we think, okay, Jesus was tempted. I also get tempted. So what does Jesus have to offer me? Uh, what, what did he do that I need to do? What five steps do I need to take tomorrow that I didn't do yesterday <coughs> to, to make improvements in my life? And of course, it is true that the Bible is here to instruct us. We were just singing of that in Psalm 119. The Bible is here to tell us how we ought to live, what's right and what's wrong. But friends, the, we also have the scriptures to show us the, the excellence and the uniqueness and the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we're not to be, as Christians, in such a rush to do things that we don't stop to see and savor Christ and to appreciate all that he has done and all that makes him our perfect and our only savior. So we're going to think, first of all, today about the unique aspects of Christ being tempted by Satan, and then we'll consider some of the more practical applications for ourselves. So first of all, today, Christ uniquely tempted by Satan. Christ uniquely tempted by Satan. I want to highlight some of the things that make Christ's experience here unique. To, uh, not, in other words, not something that is entirely experienced by anyone else. And first of all, Christ was tempted in unique circumstances. He was tempted in unique circumstances. Uh, we read earlier of his baptism, chapter 3, verse 17. You remember how glorious this moment would have been for, for the Lord Jesus. As he's baptized, the heavens open. There's this vision of a dove which symbolizes the presence of the Holy Spirit descending upon him. He's being anointed, not just with the water, but with the power of the Holy Spirit for his ministry. The Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What a beautiful moment in the life of Christ. How much more encouraged could he have been before he begins his earthly ministry? But he goes straight from that moment of joy to what we read of in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus goes straight from the river to the desert, from a moment of pleasure to a moment of pressure. And yet notice that this was very intentional. The, 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 the verse there, chapter 4, verse 1, it emphasizes that there was intention, there was purpose in what was happening here, that it was God's will that Jesus go into the wilderness. Look again at verse 1. He was led up by the Spirit, that same Spirit that had anointed him with power, that same Father who had spoken and reassured him of his pleasure in him, that God, that same God now directs him to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we'll consider more of the reasons for that uh, shortly and, and as we go through the text. But notice, friends, just at this point in passing, that God the Father planned and permitted this. This, pro <coughs> this prolonged time of fasting and loneliness for Christ, this time in the wilderness, this time facing Satan. It was part of the preparation for Jesus' unique public ministry. It wasn't orchestrated by Satan. Jesus didn't just sort of happen to wander into the wilderness and, oh, the next thing you know, lo and behold, here's Satan tempting him. God was in control of this. It was his spirit that led Christ to this moment in his life. And so it was unique circumstances, his unique baptism, his unique preparation for the unique ministry that lay ahead of him. But also Christ was tempted, uh, Christ was tempted with unique intensity. Unique intensity. Look at verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Forty days without food is just about the absolute maximum 
that a human being can manage. Indeed, many of us probably couldn't go that long without food, without being, at the very least, seriously ill. And not only does Jesus go without food for 40 days, he's in the wilderness. He is entirely alone in a very lonely and threatening environment. Can we really imagine how intense this experience would have been for the Lord Jesus before Satan even came with these very intense, deliberate temptations? 40 days of no food, 40 days of loneliness, having just had the joy of his baptism. It's hardly a day goes by uh, in our country at the moment when the words mental health uh, aren't in the headlines. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't find anyone telling you that 40 days in the desert by yourself with no food would be good for your mental health. Jesus here would have been at the absolute limit mentally and physically and spiritually. And again, friends, there was a unique aspect to what Jesus experienced here. This text is not telling us, as in some traditions people took it to be doing hundreds of years ago, This text is not telling us that we need to go into the desert for 40 days without food, that that will be some mark of higher spirituality for us. Yes, the practice of occasional fasting, as we've been thinking about and perhaps uh, partook in over the weekend here, uh, there is a place for that, and Jesus taught about that so that we, we go without food for a short time so that we can focus more on our prayers. That's something Jesus taught his disciples. But nowhere did he ever say that we need to do exactly what he did here. This was a uniquely intense situation and circumstance that Jesus faced. We will never face temptation in quite the same circumstances that he did. This is the Son of God facing the great adversary of God entirely alone for an intense period of time by himself ahead of the unique work that his father had called them to do. And whilst we do face temptations, again, we'll think about that in a moment, we can thank God, friends, we can thank God that we will never have to face anything as intense as this. So the unique circumstances, the unique intensity that Jesus faced, and then as well, he was tempted, of course, for a unique purpose. He was tempted for a unique purpose Why was it that Satan came to Christ and and, and tempted him in the particular way and with the particular intensity that he did? Well, of course, Satan is trying to derail the plan of salvation before it fully gets going in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' testing and temptations and the fact that he came through them without any failure, they prove that he is the Son of God, that he is committed to the plan that God the Father has for him to bring salvation to men and women. The temptations of Jesus, friends, show us what a vicious enemy of God and of God's plan of salvation that Satan is. Satan came to the first Adam in a garden paradise and tempted him to turn away from the will of God. Here he is is coming to the last Adam, the second Adam, in a desert wilderness, tempting him to do the same thing. And yet in the harder circumstances, in the more intense circumstances, the second Adam prevails over Satan. He proves himself to be a more faithful son of God 
than the first Adam. He proves himself to be the one through whom salvation can and will come to the children of Adam. Or think too of the sons of God who did find themselves in a wilderness. How did they get on? The people of Israel. No sooner had God saved them at the Red Sea, rescued them from the Egyptians, than what did the Israelites do? They grumbled in the wilderness because they were hungry. They gave in to the temptation of Satan to doubt God and rebel against God. And in a time of hunger and need, not to trust God, but to simply gurn and groan and complain to God. But again, Matthew here is showing his Jewish readers, here is the greater son of God. Here is the the true and better Israel, the Lord Jesus. And when he gets hungry and when he faces temptation, he resists it. And he remains committed to the will of his father. And that's what each of the the three temptations uh, recorded for us here, friends, that's what they're all about. They're about Jesus' commitment to carrying out the will of his father. Look at verse 3. If you are the son of God, Satan says, the first temptation, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Satan there is not tempting Jesus, as some people have suggested, to be greedy or to be gluttonous. How can you be guilty of gluttony or greed when you haven't eaten for 40 days? That's not what this temptation is about. No, what Satan was trying to do, the same thing here that he did with Adam, the first son of God. He's trying to get him to doubt God's fatherly goodness. It's the same with the second temptation. Notice how it begins. Verse 6, if you are the son of God. And this time Satan has a verse. He has a proof text. He quotes Psalm 91 verse 11. He will command his angels concerning you. They will bear you up. Here's how your father has promised to protect you. If you are really his son. If you are really the Messiah. If you really believe yourself to be his son. Why not give him a chance to prove how much he loves you. Throw yourself down and he said he'll miraculously save you. And again the son of God resists. Because he knows that nowhere has his father promised to help those who walk into trouble of their own making. And then in the last temptation, the devil, perhaps in some kind of spiritual vision experience, he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I'll give them to you if you just bow down and worship me. This can all be yours. And again, the the temptation here is to to doubt his father's goodness and his father's plan. Isn't this what the father ought to be giving you? His beloved son, his firstborn son, you've, you've already spent 30 years on this earth and you haven't disobeyed him in any way. Should you not be getting all the nations of the earth by now? But once more, the Lord Jesus resists, not just because he knows that the kingdoms of the earth are ultimately not Satan's to give, but also because he knows that the Father will make him the ruler of the nations after he's gone to the cross and accomplished all of his Father's will. Just consider, friends, how the Gospel of Matthew concludes. Here we are right at the beginning of his Gospel with Satan tempting Jesus. How does the Gospel conclude? Chapter 28, verse 18. The risen Jesus says to his disciples, 
while up on a high mountain, by the way, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, having died, having gone to the cross, having accomplished his Father's will, and having been raised from the dead, then Jesus has received from the Father. That's when Jesus did receive from the Father all the nations of the earth. Jesus knew that day would come if he committed himself to his Father's plan. And so Jesus says to Satan in verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall serve the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So friends, here's the work of Jesus Christ. Here's the Messiah fully qualified, the fully qualified Messiah, the fully qualified Savior, the fully obedient Son of God. And let's not be in too big of a rush to start thinking about ourselves without stopping with humility to look at his humility and his obedience and to say, blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boys and girls, some of you, I'm sure, play a musical instrument, or maybe you will someday. Hopefully you enjoy it and you want to get better at it. Sometimes it's really good to just sit down and listen to someone who plays that instrument, what seems to us, perfectly. Or who sings your favorite songs perfectly. Or who plays your sport amazingly. You just sit back and you watch it or you listen to it and you drink it in and enjoy it. And on one level, that's how we should approach God's word. We, we come to it first and foremost to say, Who is Jesus Christ? What is he like? What has he done for me? We see and savor Jesus Christ, as one writer has put it. And as we see him here, and as we we see him fully committed to the plan of salvation that his father had for him, it should prompt us to worship him and serve him afresh, to come, as the psalmist says, and sing to the Lord a new song for the great wonders he has done. His right hand and arm most holy have for him the victory won. We can give thanks today that none of us have ever had to go where Christ went or face what he faced, not exactly, not entirely. Not just 40 days in the desert without food, but three or four hours on the cross forsaken by his Father. None of us will ever be alone in quite the same way that Christ was alone in the wilderness and again on the cross. None of us will have to carry the same weight that Christ carried, the sins of all his people put on his shoulders as he became our substitute sacrifice on the cross. We deserve to experience those things. Christ came and experienced them for us. And if you're not a Christian today, you need to turn to him in repentance and faith. Otherwise, you will have to bear the weight of your own sin forever as you receive punishment for that sin in the place the Bible calls hell. The Bible also tells us, dear friend, that Christ has gone through hell. He has gone through that experience of the wrath of God upon him on the cross so that you can be saved. Hebrews 5 verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death 
and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience. That is, his, his obedience was perfect through what he suffered. How thankful we should be, friends, that each and every day, we should be thankful each and every day that Christ suffered for us in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. How thankful we should be that he chose that unique, lonely path of obedience to his Father so that we also could be called sons of God. So Christ, uniquely tempted by Satan, but also we want to think about Christ's followers, us who call ourselves Christians, routinely tempted by Satan. Christ's followers, routinely tempted by Satan. And even if we're not tempted in the same intense circumstances that Jesus was, uh, that's, that's not to make any less of the seriousness and sometimes the severity of the temptations that Satan does put in front of us. Satan sometimes tempts us to lose our temper, perhaps most often, in fact, to lose our temper with those closest to us, our spouse, our brother, our sister, our children. He tempts some of us to despair, to become so overwhelmed with anxiety that we doubt God or we forget God or we, we sink into self-pity or sorrow. He tempts some of us when we're driving to ignore the rules of the road. He tempts us with money. If only my bank balance reached this amount, then I would be secure and then I could give more generously to this or that ministry or person. He tempts us with lust. Young people in particular, but older people as well. If you haven't already, you need to be taking preventative steps. You need to have a plan to make sure that pornography isn't on your screens or taking up residence in your mind. Satan tempts us with jealousy, perhaps speaking spitefully or gossiping about someone simply because actually we're, we're jealous of them in some regard. Satan will tempt you when you're alone. He'll tempt you with company. He'll tempt you on a Tuesday morning when you're doing the dishes. He'll tempt you on a Sabbath evening after church. He'll tempt you when you're out with your friends or at home with your family. He'll tempt you at a Christian camp. He'll tempt you right after you get home from a Christian camp. He'll tempt you on the rugby or the football pitch or the hockey pitch. He'll tempt you when you're scrolling on your phone or watching TV. He can tempt us anytime, anywhere. This is not to say that Satan is everywhere present and all-powerful. As I said earlier, that's not the case. But he is a spiritual being. He has, he's only the leader of many spiritual beings. The Bible calls demons or fallen angels. And whether it's Satan or whether it's one of his demons, he can tempt us at any time, in any way, to sin. That's why we read in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Peter wouldn't have told us to resist him, friends, if it wasn't possible to resist him. So how do we do that? Well, notice here that Christ has given us a strategy for facing temptations. Christ has given us a strategy for facing temptations. And that strategy is very simple. 
wield your sword. Wield is not a word we use very often, but wield your sword. That is to be our strategy against the attacks of Satan. Boys and girls, we've been looking at the armor of God at arrows over the past year. I wonder, Dan, if you remember what the sword of the Spirit is. Anybody remember what the sword of the Spirit is? Yep. It's the Bible, yes. It's the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. That is the only weapon. It's the only offensive weapon in the arsenal of the armor of God. And that's the weapon that Jesus uses when Satan tempts him. And it's the weapon that we are to use as well. Look again at the temptations that he faces. Verse 3, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Verse 4, Jesus responds, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, quoting there from the book of Deuteronomy. And so Jesus, every time that Satan tempts him, responds, it is written, it is written, it is written written. He wields his sword. Just notice, though, friends, that Satan takes note of that. And in verse 6, when he comes to Jesus the second time, he quotes Scripture himself. Satan misuses Scripture. He, He quotes a verse without any regard for what it really means. That's something, by the way, that Satan is still doing all the time in our world today through the false teachers of our world today. Uh, Hannah happened to be listening to an interview with a Christian woman just this morning who had been saved out of the Mormon church in America. And this woman said that 83% of people who join the Mormon church in America are nominal Christians. In other words, people who probably have at least a handful of Bibles in their houses, but who either have never read those Bibles or haven't properly thought about what they've read in those Bibles And then are totally bamboozled when two polite young men in shirts and ties show up at their door and start talking about the three heavens and all the things you need to do to get there and how Jesus is actually a brother of Satan and all the rest of it. We need to know our Bibles, friends. And just because someone quotes from the Bible doesn't mean that they are rightly applying the Bible. What did Jesus do here when Satan uses the Bible incorrectly, what does Jesus do? He uses the Bible correctly. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If someone is misusing scripture, we are to know and understand our scriptures well enough to see it and to spot it, and we use scripture, we wield our sword in the right way. And Jesus does the same with the last temptation again. He says, it is written. So our strategy against the the temptations of Satan is to wield our sword. That means, friends, we need to know how to use our sword. Here's just one good reason to use that five-day-a-week Bible reading plan in 2024. Even if you just go through the New Testament or maybe the New Testament and the Psalms, you'll be becoming a more proficient swordsman so that we know how to handle the one weapon we have to battle Satan. It's not enough to just know what it says. Satan knows what it says. We have to know how to use it. I know a fencing sword when I see one. I could probably lift it up. I could point it at you like a minute. I might even convince you that I know what I'm doing with it. 
But if I had to fight against a real opponent, an Olympic fencing medalist, I'd be done for. We need to become more proficient. We need to practice with. We need to get to know our sword. J.C. Ryle says, do we grudge the time and trouble this will cost us? That is to to study the word, to meditate upon it, to memorize it, to think about it. Do we grudge the time it will take? If we do, we are not yet fit for the kingdom of God. That's a challenging thought, is it not? If we call ourselves followers of the king of kings, do we we listen to what the king has to say? Are we thinking about what he says? Are we remembering what he says? Not least so that we can be ready when the king's enemy comes to tempt us. So as you think about Christ's followers routinely tempted by Satan, we, we, we think about the strategy that we have, and the strategy to face those temptations is to wield our sword. But as we do that, we also need to know, friends, as we face our temptations, that Christ sympathizes with us when we face temptation. Christ sympathizes with us when we face temptation. I've emphasized to you this morning that the temptations that he faced were uniquely intense. They were uniquely demanding, more so even than our worst temptations ever will be. But friends, because Christ has gone through that, because he has faced those far more intense temptations, he is uniquely able to sympathize with us when we're tempted. Do you ever feel alone? Do you ever feel alone when you're tempted? The Lord Jesus knows how you feel. Do you ever feel overwhelmed with sorrow and anxiety? The Lord Jesus knows how you feel. Do you ever wish Satan would clear off? The Lord Jesus knows how you feel. In fact, he commanded Satan to clear off. And so in the name of Jesus, you can do the same. God isn't angry at you, dear Christian, for being tempted to lose your temper, tempted to be greedy, tempted to be lazy. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a trial when we're tempted. And Christ knows what it is to go through those trials. And he is more sympathetic to you than anyone else ever can be or will be. That well-known verse from Hebrews is well worth knowing, remembering, repeating. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Sometimes we feel like no one else understands. That's usually not true, even in terms of our friends and family. Someone somewhere probably does understand, but even if they don't, and it's possible that they don't, even if they don't, Christ does. He's been there. In fact, he's been there in a more uniquely intense way than we ever will be. And so, in, our, in the face of our temptations, Christ sympathizes with us. And so he's given us a strategy. He sympathizes with us. And then the last thing, as we think about facing our temptations, is that in Christ we are already victorious when we face our temptations. In Christ, we are already victorious when we face our temptations. What about those times when we're tempted and no Bible verse comes to mind? 
and we've been memorizing them all year, and we do really well when we come into our spouse or to our mom and dad and say, I've memorized these verses, and you can rhyme them off. What do we do in that moment when mind goes blank, the pressure is on us, we don't know what to say or do? Do we just have no choice but to, to, to give in to temptation? No, even then, friends, we, we simply declare to Satan, I might not know how to answer you, but I know that my Savior has defeated you. I know that he is more powerful than you. I know that after you tempted him three times, he told you to go away. And you had to do it because the one who is with me is greater than you. I may not be strong enough to resist you, but he was and he is. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? You realize, friends, that's what Satan spends all his time doing. The Bible calls him the accuser, who accuses the saints day and night. Satan, as it were, stands outside the gates of heaven 24-7, protesting the fact that God saves sinners. How can you call these idolaters and adulterers, these, these imperfect parents and these imperfect church members and these imperfect preachers, how can you call them sons of God? And God the Father points to the same place we point when Satan comes tempting and accusing us. God the Father points to his right hand where Christ sits, our justification. Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And Paul goes on to say, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When Satan comes to tempt you, dear friend, remember he is the loser and you are the victor because of Jesus Christ. Jesus faced Satan's temptations not just in the wilderness but right throughout his life. It wasn't just in the wilderness that Satan came hissing at Jesus, if you are the Son of God, do you remember the last time that Jesus heard those words, if you are the Son of God? It was on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 40. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And in the roar of the crowds, Jesus heard the familiar hiss of the serpent. And he resisted him, firm in his faith. And in him, friends, and by the help that he gives and by the strength that he gives and by the victory that he has already won for us, we can do the same. We can resist him firm in our faith. Tomorrow morning, maybe even this afternoon, Satan will be waiting. Pick up your sword before he even arrives. Resist him firm in your faith and our conqueror and our deliverer, that perfect son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.